For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Before we get on the water, a couple words from our sponsors. The other day, I called up Josh Lively, who guides for Roaring Fork Anglers in Basalt, Colorado. He told me what makes Scott Fly Rod special. You know, we could talk about how great these rods cast or the heritage of Scott, but to think that those rods are all handcrafted by blue-collar American workers. They wake up every day to handcraft the finest fly rods made. It's just really cool to, to see that, you know, to know the, the pride that's going into that rod. It's always cool when I get to go to the factory and give everybody a high-five and bring them a case of beer and donuts. Thanks, Josh. You can find out more information at your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. We're also supported by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. I recently chatted with Yellow Dog employee Camille Egdorf who just got back from a big trip to Kamchatka. Yeah, so this was a raft or a float trip type situation or experience. Um, We are primarily targeting rainbow trout. Other species include Dolly Varden, five different species of Pacific salmon, and then another kind of exotic species that you don't uh, come across often that we were targeting was called the Super Kunja, which is a sea run char. I think our biggest was 35 inches and uh, I think our smallest was probably around 28 or 29 inches so pretty hefty fish and um, you know we definitely got into a few which was great. To learn more about Kamchatka and other trips of a lifetime visit yellowdogflyfishing.com. Welcome back folks. Last week in episode 22 of the Drake cast we met Don Wisner. So I could always relate to, uh, to, to Norman McLean's father, you know, who was the Presbyterian pastor. And his son, Steve. Are you uh, more Paul or Norman? I, you know, I think I'm an exact uh, split of being half Paul and half Norman. And in addition to being the reincarnation of both of the McLean boys, Steve also runs a guiding business out of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. We've got about... Oh, a half an inch of new snow out here. It doesn't look like anyone's used this boat landing in a while, so I think we're uh, we're fishing for unpressured fish today. <laughs> that should be uh, that that should be good. When I was back in the Midwest a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of getting out on the water with Steve. It's mostly liquid. A little, little bit of a little ice. <laughs> Yeah, so what are, what are the rules? Well, I mean, there's some informal rules. One of them is that you got to pile all your crap on top of your landing net um, because the more stuff you have piled on it, the, the higher the chances are that you're, you're going to catch fish. Um, one of the other, you know, real important rules has to do with beer selection. These are the working man, common man's trophy. This is the fish that your grandpa fished for. Um, there's no fancy pants beer allowed while fishing for these fish. Um, hams would be really the, that's a high percentage beer if you drink hams. Um, but yeah, if it has some, if it has some kind of thing on it that talks about what the hop rating is or something, you know, save that for trout fishing. We don't, we're not bringing that into a boat. Um, that's just one of those rules that that's important to understand. What exactly is Steve talking about when he says the working man's trophy? What kind of fish were we going to be targeting? It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Let's go musky fishing. Today, 
we're going to float down a blue ribbon musky stream on a chilly November Wisconsin morning in search of the elusive river Nazi. And while we're on the water, we're also going to chat with a few folks about how people began to target these toothy critters with fly rods. Stick around. And where are we? We're right at the confluence of the Flambeau and the Chippewa rivers. And, and the Chippewa, which we just went over, is just a bunch of floating icebergs. So there's no possible way that we can fish that river. Um, the, the Flambeau is closer to a dam, so it still is pretty much ice-free. The Flambeau and Chippewa rivers are two of the most consistent muskie producers in the country. And I don't think anyone knows that better than Joe Flater. I uh, born and raised right here. And where where is here? Where is the bar? Uh, oh, uh, Holcomb, Wisconsin, actually. Right where Lumbo and Chippewa River come together. It'll be, what, I'll be 62 uh, December 14th, so I grew right up here, right at the, right at the bar. Never, never left home. Joe's a big dude, sports a white goatee, and he more or less embodies the Northwoods just about as well as anyone could. And Joe Flater owns Flater's Resort in Holcomb, Wisconsin, which is a regular institution within the world of muskie fishing. So my grandpa, well, pretty quick, it'll be 80 years of spending the family. And 38, whatever that is, 38. So yeah, it's going on, going on 80 years here pretty quick. Joe Flater's family has been targeting the fish in this area for about as long as anybody can remember. Yeah, you know, my, my grandpa, Harry Flater, well, he guided them the upper flamble. Imagine that to Cedar Rapids and Beaver. I don't know if you've ever been up through them. But um, they guided, and my dad did too, the old wooden boats. What was northern Wisconsin like in like the late 50s, early 60s when you were a kid? Ah, uh, you know, less populated, more gravel roads. And uh, and uh, we grew up on, you know, we didn't have four-wheelers and stuff like that. We grew up on old mom Bob bicycles and made our own fun, you know, between fishing, probably why I got fishing, you know, and, and uh, so my dad taught me pretty good, you know, and, and then I started, actually, I started guiding, he'd throw me in a boat, and I was 12 or 14 years old, and I'd make like 20 bucks a day and roll them down the river, and, and i show him how to fish a little bit, and I'd usually out fish him, <laughs> so I had like three baits in my tackle box, and a, a stringer and a pliers, and that was about it. What were people catching then? What were you guiding for? Everything? Nothing? Uh, yeah, pretty well everything. You know, mo- mostly probably bass and northern. But mainly they caught whatever they could. You know, I remember the days they'd come down the river and they'd bring back a gunny sack full of fish. <laughs> the whole front lawn is loaded with fish. <laughs> and they'd have fish fries every Friday. He'd throw a, had a big stainless steel pan and he'd throw oil in there. And then he'd have a beer batter and cook for everybody. And then we'd pick up a muskie once in a while. But, you know, smaller stuff then until I got a little older, you know. And, Joe has one particular memory of when his life kind of changed. I was 12. My dad asked me to go with. He had a little guide trip. And the guy just wanted bass fish and walleye fish. And I caught a, right off the point here, and I caught my first legal muskie 34-incher on a nightcrawler. And I drug it up the bank and uh, didn't have a net. Of course, he yelling and screaming. I said, I got a muskie. So dad took a picture of the old Polaroid. And he said, get it back in the water. And, you know, so I got the fever. <laughs> It's been that way ever since, you know. And so when you were a kid, were people musky fishing all that much back then? And if so, like, what kind of gear were they using? Where were they were fishing? And, like, what kind of boats were they using? Yeah, um, you know, my dad started out with the old 14-foot little crafts. 
So he started out with the old Fluger Supreme and threw like, you know, 20 pound Cortland. And then, you know, he had to cut, he had to, well, like when he was guiding, he almost had to cut it off like three times to retie the stuff would fray. There were five foot poles and baits flying by your head. And <laughs> back then, you know, the baits were kind of minimal. So like the old Daredevil, the Johnson spoon, we used to put the you know, pork right on that. Uh, a few bucktails and surface baits, you know, all the old injured minnow and uh, black Cisco kid were kind of the main ones, you know, back then. Let's compare Joe's gear to what Steve and I would be using in 2017. So, I mean, basically what we're going to be fishing, um, you know, we're fishing seven, eight inch long, uh, neutrally buoyant, articulated flies. There's no real weight in the fly. 40 pound uh, leader with 30 pound wire at the end for a bite guard. Um, and then we're just fishing a full sink line. So basically, you know, the line is what's going to get the fly down. There's no weight in it. Um, and the way you want to fish these things, you know, you're going to put them out. The water's really cold right now, which means the fish are, they're, they're going to be slow and they're going to want to move slow, you know, lob that thing out there. And then the strips are going to be, even though they're slow, you still want to, you still want to have, put some snap into them just to give, so that the fly will work. So basically I just kind of let there be a nice pause in between each snap and just let the fly walk the dog. The idea with the articulation is you'll get a whole lot of waggle and a lot of action. Muskies like to eat, you know, if they can, they'd like to get around on the head of it and take it that way, which is why you need the bite guard. Um, or they'll try to T-bone it. And so a fly that really gets a lot of side profile on every single strip is uh, a fly that's you, you know probably going to get strikes as opposed to one that just goes in a straight line. The, the thing that makes musky fishing such a pain is that you're going to strip this fly all the way up and then figure eight it. And if I get the vibe, I'll kind of keep it going with the figure eight. And some of that, you just have to go with your own gut instinct. If you have a feeling, if we're in a spot where it feels really fishy and you feel like, that, you know, then keep, keep soaking it. Which is a slightly different technique than Joe and his family were putting to practice in the 50s and 60s. But anyways, Joe continues guiding and working at the family resort. And in those days, it was pretty much all gear and bait. But every once in a while, one of those weird guys with a fly rod would end up in his boat. I used to take a couple old judges out there, a judge and a lawyer, and uh, just roll the boat. And they, they'd throw the fly rod for the, just for bass fishing. And them guys were just a hoot. I had a good time watching them. And... But that was still pretty seldom. When did you see kind of the musky fishing change where more people started getting into it and musky fishing was a thing? Like, do you know what, what era that was? I'd, I'd say like the 70s when I got out of high school. You know, we had a few more, a lot more people coming up. My dad had a lot more river trips and we'd, you know, we'd rent boats out, haul you up and drop you off and you're on your own. And why, why do you think it took off around then? Why not before? Back in the days, you know, anybody would catch a muskie, they killed it. And, you know, and some of them got mounted. And, yeah. So it's a, it's a different type of fishing. To hold Joe accountable... I decided to fact check him by calling up a numbers guy. Fisheries, Tim Simonson. This is Tim Simonson, a fisheries biologist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. I started with the department in 1990, and I've been chairman of the department's muskie management team for 20 years or so. And I asked Tim about public perception towards muskie fishing and catch and release back in the olden days like the early 1900s through, say, the 1970s. Back in those days, it was kind of a mysterious fish. 
it was always a valued fish. The muskie was named a state fish by the legislature in the 50s. You know, there was world record muskies registered from Wisconsin waters back in the 40s. And so it was always a revered fish. And back in those days, it was a lot lower density in terms of the number of fish out there. So it was more of a you know, a big fish fishery, a rare occurrence. It took a long time to catch a fish. You know, the old adage of 10,000 casts. You know, even in those days, uh, a 30-incher was considered a trophy because it was so rare to catch them. And during your time with the DNR, how have you seen muskie management and public attitude towards muskies change over that, that period, that 27 years? Wow. Uh, it's, I mean, it's changed a lot. I mean, uh, Today we see virtually all the muskies that are caught released by anglers. Um, you know, it's not really due to regulations so much as angler behavior and uh, ethics of avid muskie anglers that have kind of pushed the the notion of releasing legal sized fish to be caught another day. And when was the inflection point of people really starting to catch and release at a much higher percentage? Probably the early 1990s when the when it started to increase and it's just grown steadily. Remember those dates, the early 1990s, because they're going to be important later on in this story. As the attitudes of anglers changed and catch and release became the norm in the 90s, the muskie fishery continued to improve in Wisconsin. And at the same time, all of a sudden, more and more people started using fly rods in less than conventional ways. Books like Pike on the Fly and Kelly Gallup's Modern Streamers came out, which made anglers look at fly fishing as something other than just throwing dry flies upstream to rising trout. And while this groundswell of experimental fly fishing was sweeping the nation, a husband and wife were guiding out in Colorado and had pretty much had enough of it. The diversity in Colorado at that time was pretty much trout and then different kinds of trout, and then there was always trout and trout. And so we always looked for something new to do when we, were, when we had a day off in Colorado. This is Larry Mann, who's an important character in the whole story of how Muskie on the Fly came to be. Actually, my wife grew up in Hayward. Which is a town not too far north of Holcomb, where Joe Flater grew up. Her grandmother was the first white woman born and recorded in this county in 1885. So, In the 90s, Larry and Wendy were in the midst of falling in love while guiding in Colorado, when all of a sudden... We came back here. Here being Hayward, Wisconsin. Because Wendy's dad passed away and her mom was not dealing with it very well. So we came back to help her. And it turns out she had Alzheimer's and we stayed to take care of her. And so Wendy thought she had escaped Hayward, and in fact, we came back. And our friends in Colorado pretty much thought we were crazy, and it was the best thing that ever happened to either of us. Because in Larry's opinion, what they discovered in Hayward was way better than trout, trout, and more trout. Hayward's got muskie and pike and walleye and bluegill and crappie and smallmouth and largemouth and all of these fish, those carp, I mean, everywhere. So that's how we got back here. That was an exciting time and still is because I can't think of a more diverse fishery anywhere in the country. We live in a what-do-you-want-to-catch-today neighborhood. 
Oh, it's a great neighborhood to be in. It's awesome, yeah. Larry and Wendy saw all these warm water species as new targets and set about trying to catch all of them. But they were really enamored by muskie. I mean, when we started fishing uh, uh, in up here in 1998 for these fish, a three or four inch long fly was huge, just unbelievably huge. It was unheard of. Wow. Just crazy. A three inch fly. And as time went on, Larry and Wendy started using bigger flies and really started figuring out how to fish for muskie on the fly. They were doing so well with it that in 1998, Larry and Wendy began guiding fly fishers into muskie and bass in Wisconsin. Is, was there like a crystallizing moment of when you figured out like, oh, these fish are going to eat flies? Well, I don't, I don't know that I have a, a, a memory when you put it like that, but it was, uh, I just didn't ever think otherwise. My, my thought was always, why would some fish attack a metal thing with a propeller on the front of it and eight treble hooks when they could have this thing that actually looks like food that they eat normally. So it never occurred to me otherwise. I always thought fishing with a spinnerbait and plop, plop, fizz, fizz was always more weird than fishing with a fly. And when did the musky thing on the fly really take off? It just kind of evolved. It just was kind of organically grown. You know, we started doing it, and people saw, and kind of, oh, I could do that. They got into the river and caught a few fish, and and they started going on their own. In 2004, Larry and Wendy opened Hayward Fly Fishing Company, which they still operate and guide out of today. Well, it was really kind of uh, quiet. I mean, we were doing our thing, and it's never been our... A personality type to beat on our chest and say, oh, come look at us, and we're doing this fly fishing thing, and it's so cool. It's just like, man, we're just here. We do our thing. And While these folks were plugging away, catching muskies left and right, and kind of keeping things to themselves, a couple of other folks arrived on the scene. When it's good, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's as good as any sex as you'll ever have. You really can't talk about fly fishing for muskie without bringing Brad Bowen into the mix. I mean, this is a fish you could spend a lifetime trying to even get just a little bit of them figured out. Bowen and Lucky Porter really started to bombard social media with pictures of muskies with gigantic flies hanging out of their mouths. It's such a vicious, crazy, fast, mean, just nasty bite out of nowhere most of the time that it just about stops your heart. Then the movie, Musky Country Zero to Hero, came out and made the fly fishing film tour rounds. I really believe that musky on the fly is where it's happening right now. Lucky Porter and Brad Bowen have since gone separate ways, but in Wisconsin and other places where musky are known to lurk, Muskie on the fly is still where it's happening. I've seen folks swinging flies with spay rods for muskies. My 64-year-old father goes out with his buddies and they throw big streamers. A friend of mine went out on closing day of the 2017 muskie season to a little-known river and ran into three other fly fishers targeting muskie. All of these examples would have been unheard of 10 years ago. This explosion in muskie angling 
also happens to be taking place when musky fishing is kinda as good as it's ever been. Remember when I told you to remember the date of the early 1990s? Well, here's why. A 50-inch fish is, on average, around 18 years old. Again, Tim Simonson, fisheries biologist. And because, you have, because you're dealing with a species that lives 20, 25, even up to 30 years, it takes a long time for populations to respond to uh, changes in harvest and changes in survival and mortality. So you can make a change, you know, if you put a regulation in effect, it's going to take 20 years to see, you know, a, bi- a big response. So it's, uh, it takes a career to, uh, you know, see things change, which is uh, pretty amazing. And that change of attitude in the 90s led to more bigger fish being around within the last 10 years. And the continuation of the catch and release ethic just means that the fishing is going to get better and better. Yeah, when I started, I remember one of my first uh, projects was to try to increase the minimum size limit from 32 inches to 36 inches, and it was, uh, it was contested, and it was, uh, it was not very popular with, with some of the public. Like this past year, we, we put on a whole bunch of 50-inch minimum length limits with no controversy whatsoever. So that, you know, that'll, that's a testament to the change um, in attitudes we've seen. But what we're seeing is a steady increase in the uh, size structure, which is we measure by e- either the average size of fish or the proportion of large fish in the population. We're just seeing continual increases in average size and the number of big fish out there. So every year there's more and more big fish being caught. And the vast majority of muskie anglers, including the bait and gear guys, follow this catch-and-release ethic. Yeah, the people on the boat with me are good about it. You know, it says, well, if I, I catch a 15, I said, oh, no, no. I said, you know, put it back, get a picture, and it's a good feeling. Get a couple pictures and put them back. And I said, that's a great feeling when you do that. And everybody agrees with that, too. And I said, you got to leave it for the next guy. And, but I said, I said I'm not, I'm, we're, not, we're not keeping them in my boat. <laughs> this is my house. <laughs> Now that we know how the fishery is doing today and kind of why, let's get back on the water with Steve in November of 2017. Oh, listen to the the cranes. Around noon, air temperatures finally made it above 32 degrees, and right as we were nearing the end of our float... All right, that was... That was just a complete tutorial on why you can't trout set these fish. Um, so I didn't have the microphone running, but I'll let Steve walk you through what happened. We just had a really nice fish that just uh, ate and, and and failed to get hooked up. Can you yep. explain what just went on, okay, like what so, you were doing, what we right, were doing? So basically, here's what just happened in classic musky fishing uh, uh, scenario. We uh, stopped the boat in some really fishy-looking water. Kind of a nice little, there's an ice shelf here sticking out, but the water's real slow, it's deep. And I dropped the anchor, and uh, you were throwing throwing in there while I took a pee, which is kind of classic. So I'm facing the completely other direction, taking a leak. And uh, I hear this explosion, and um, you end up getting this, this fish to eat. And I look, and it's just launching through the air. It's a you know, nice musky. Um, but my favorite part was that your arm just came straight back up exactly the way that you'd set the hook if that was a trout eating it. And then you, 
I'm not going to say that you kind of screamed a little bit like a little girl, but there was a tiny bit of, ah, that went on when it happened. Um, but needless to say, there was the, there was a muskie, and now it's out there licking its wounds because it didn't uh, end up getting hooked. But that's classic. Even with the spread of catch and release and there being more big muskies out there than ever before, these fish are still anything but easy to bring to hand. And, you know, that's the thing. I mean, we're using, this fly's got one hook, one single barbless hook. If you look at guys that use traditional gear, they'll have three honking troubles on there, and they still lose fish. You know, it's not like, you know, it's, it's, it's again, you know, it just sucks because you're only going to get one or two shots. You know, I mean, that's just it, you know. So when it happens, you're like, ah, there it is. You know, that might be it. That might be the only fish we see eat all day. But we got one to eat. Now, I want to point out that while there are a ton of new anglers with flies, gear, and bait chasing after muskies, it's still a pretty small subset of the population that chooses to spend an entire day hoping for signs of maybe one or two fish. This activity will drive you crazy. You know, if, you, if you're going to measure success in muskie fishing by how many fish you put in the boat, you're just going to be a de- de- depressed person. There's just no way around it. It really, it, it, you're just going to be depressed. You know, there's a reason why muskie fishing will never be the thing that that lots of people do. It just it won't because it's uh, it just it requires too much not catching fish and too much sort of keeping yourself in the game and you know and everything that that most people just aren't going to put up with it. They just aren't, you know. Um, But the people who do are kind of a special breed of people, I guess. You know, I mean, I you know insane well it's yeah it's insane and that's just it maybe that's at the core it's the dumbest goddamn thing you could ever do but at the same time when that line went tight it all seemed worth it just seeing that 35 inch fish launch out of the water with my fly in its mouth made my day Another friend who didn't want to go on the record phrased it this way. Fishing for smallmouth or trout is like jerking off. Musky fishing is like sleeping with supermodels. You're not going to sleep with very many supermodels, but when you do, it's a lot better. That being said, I tend to fish for smallmouth and trout much more often than I target muskies. But hey, you do you. Stick around for this week's Field Notes. But first, a few thank yous. Joe Flater, Larry Mann, Steve Wisner, thanks for taking the time to talk with me about the growth of muskie fishing. Our title track is Ain't It Sweet by the legendary Phil Cook. Keegan Lynch designed our logo. This week's Field Notes come to us from Round Rock, Texas. This is Chris. Chris Johnson owns Living Waters Fly Shop in Central Texas, and told me about the fisheries in his area. We kind of knock on the door of uh, a good many fisheries. Our home water is Brushy Creek right here in downtown Round Rock. Brushy Creek is a 69-mile creek that runs all the way from, I think it's over by Leander, where it kind of pops up all the way down to darn near Rockdale, I think, is where it uh, converges with the San Gabriel River, which is another phenomenal fishery in our area that we're only 15 minutes away from. And what kind of species do these rivers hold? A lot of warm water species. So we have, uh, obviously, our state fish, the Guadalupe bass. We have a, uh, another one that's very unique. We have the uh, 
Rio Grande cichlid. So it's actually the only native cichlid to uh, the U.S. And so it's really awesome to have those right here in our backyard. And we, in fact, I was out this Monday and uh, actually picked up a few of those as well. But this time of year, most people tend to have their eyes on one specific river. Yeah, we, it doesn't really matter. Everybody calls it. <laughs> it depends on what everybody wants to call it. But I just normally say the Guadalupe. So shut me up if I if I get talking too much about it. I mean, uh, initially, most people see that 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 is a wintertime trout fishery. It's one of the you know ranked top 100 trout streams in the nation according to uh, a couple of books that have been published and things of that sort. And that fishery, for the most part, kind of kicks off in November. Your, your, your highest traffic is going to be November through April. You'll have a few stragglers that fish it throughout the year, uh, myself being one of those. The wintertime fisheries, obviously, when you're going to get the numbers, it's when you're going to typically you know, wind up with larger fish and, and a little bit more diversity in, in realms of where you can fish because the trout are stocked all up and down that river. Um, there are two different entities that stock the river. You've got... Uh, the Trout Unlimited Chapter, GRTU, which is responsible for uh, the larger fish, uh, and it's typically about three stockings a year of rainbows, and you've also got Texas Parks and Wildlife. May dump more of a, uh, I would say their average fish is probably like a 7 to 12 inch fish, so it's not an extraordinarily large trout by any, any means, but it does kind of help fill in the gaps as the average fish stocked by GRTU is typically going to be between about a 14 and 18 inch window. So a friend of mine mentioned that he's been catching some really huge fish, much larger than 18 inches on the Guadalupe lately. Where are these fish coming from? Like, did you guys get a new hatchery or are they holdovers? Nope, same hatchery. What they did is they, you've got retired brood fish. So we've done, we've done business as a chapter with that hatchery for a long, long time. And they, they have always done a very good job of, you know, making sure that if they've got a bone to throw us, that they do it. And uh, they had a lot of these brood fish this year that they were retiring. They had more of these uh, large fish that they needed to part with. And so, I mean, I was just talking to our VP of fisheries today. He said he caught one that measured an honest 25 inches uh, a couple of days ago. And what's the best way to target these fish? Uh, subsurface nymph rigs. If you're doing just kind of that standard attractor dropper nymph rig, that really is day in, day out, the most effective thing to do on the river. Um, dry flies are, I mean, there are, there are times and places where you can make that happen, and uh, there is a little bit of a streamer game uh, if you know where to find it. These big fish are doing more than just providing anglers the opportunity to land a trophy. And I mean, I've caught fish that were naturally spawned in the river, which is pretty cool. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't happen often, but to say that it never happens would be a gross, gross understatement. It does happen. Uh, those big broodfish came off the truck hot and heavy, ready to spawn this year. There's there's reds in the river right now. That's the weirdest thing in the world is you go down a rapid and there's two trout sitting on a red. I mean, they're in central Texas. That's a little weird. Hey, maybe Texas could one day have a self-sustaining population of rainbow trout. Who knows? In addition to these oversized bruisers in the Guadalupe, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department has also began stocking some 300,000 rainbows in other water bodies across the state. So grab your bait rod and a can of corn and go catch dinner. Alrighty, that's all we have for you this week. Next week, I think we're going to do an episode about targeting a certain trash fish that has somehow gained the title of golden bonefish. But don't quote me on that. Regardless, we hope that you tune in next Friday. Thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.